The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Hello, 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 humans. Welcome back to the Schmozone podcast. This is episode number 65. Before we begin, this episode is brought to you by Fusion CBD products. For all of your CBD needs, if you have anxiety, trouble sleeping, heck, you just want to try something that makes your muscles feel good after intense workout, check out FusionCBDProducts.com. I love using their Instant Freeze. We're going to be sipping on their Fusion CBD Sports Water, which is always nice after a good strength and conditioning workout. You got to check them out. They got their gummies. I'm always thinking a million miles an hour, so it's always nice to try something to take the edge off. Use the promo code SHMO to get 20% off at checkout. And now, today's episode of the Schmo Zone, I'm really pumped for. I'm Dave Schmolenson, AKA the Schmo. My co-host is... Helene Sports. And our guest today is the four-time Mr. Olympia, the one and only Jay Cutler. I love that one and only. You are the one and only. And before we kind of get started, I need to add a little fun fact. So me and Jay go way back to basically one of my first ever shows that I've literally ever done back in 2014. And I just want to say thank you so much for coming on my show when I was first getting started. And I think I was probably a nervous wreck during the show. And I just I really appreciate, you know, all your continued support and obviously uh, love and support everything that you do as well. You've progressed quite a bit. It's impressive. Oh, I can't believe that you. was I can't believe that was six, seven years ago already. Crazy. Yeah. I, I started with saying one and only because actually Helen loves to say the phrase one and only in the interview. So it was a kind of teaser for that. But also as a little teaser because I'm from Chicago and there is another Jay Cutler. He was a Jay Cutler of the Chicago Bears. I don't think he's as popular as you, but I'm definitely well-versed in both Jay Cutlers. He's in the news. He's in the news quite a bit with the reality TV. And, you know, for him, he was one of the highest paid. I think he was really talented. I mean, remember, I was I won the Olympia the year he came out for the draft. And I think he got drafted to the Broncos and then, of course, got traded to the Bears. But he was a big deal. So Sports Illustrated used to interview the two of us and uh, back and forth and it was a lot of uh, because, of course, the search name Jay Cutler. I had jaycutler.com. So there's a lot of comparisons they made, and you know, I was at top of my game at the point when he was just coming into the pros. How much did it annoy you to get confused for that Jay Cutler? I the mean, the only annoying part was the the tweets I got on Sundays because the performance were, weren't the best, right? So I don't know. Even even uh, Sports Center and all these guys would tag my Twitter. And even to this day, I get a lot of Instagram still uh, of requests uh, that are related to he. We were talking before the show, just kind of um, 
you moved here nearly 20 years ago and mm -hmm. the city i mean it's grown so much right like the raiders are here now the golden knights i never imagined uh when i came to vegas i mean i came to vegas for the first time i think in around 98 they had the mr usa bodybuilding show here and i came and i was living in massachusetts at the time and i think i was around 20 23 or so and I, I just was amazed by the lights and I never thought back then that I would ever live here, right? And eventually became a resident and accepted in the community and won the Mr. Olympia title here and I finished you know my career and reside here still to this day, which I love the city and uh, the respect I get from, from all the people within. Yeah, I'm two years into living here in Las Vegas and I just love it. Obviously one of those years was a pandemic, but <laughs> I don't think there is a more light pollutant place on earth than Las Vegas, the strip per square mile. Like it's amazing. You could see it from space, you could see it from everywhere. And I just feel like there's ample opportunity in the city. Yes, yeah, it's, it's never ending. And, and I've seen the expansion. You know, we talked about, you know, some of the freeways and some of the hotels that did not, I mean, the Wynn Hotel was, they didn't even have Encore back then. and. Uh, the wind was being constructed and during those times and you know I saw a lot of places blow up and be destroyed and replaced I mean back then I mean Rio was the biggest and Mandalay Bay was being built and that was the spot to be you know and Henderson I don't ever remember it stretching out like that far like the M Casino mm -hmm. in St. Rose area yeah it's crazy all the all the real estate and I've saw I, I came here for actually for real estate and I've seen the expansion of everything it's just uh you know i never imagined the homes would be worth as much money as they are here and we're we're in the process of house hunting and like we're looking at this area and sparada yes and that i feel like 10 15 years from now is going to be the next henderson yeah. or Summerlin. it's beautiful i mean henderson has the lowest uh, property tax in the whole country i don't know if you guys knew that or not but did not know that good yeah. to know yeah that's good to know. Uh, how how far can we take this back? Um, should we? Where do you do you want to start somewhere? Well, I guess you could start. So Jay, um, I guess every single person, every single high school male that gets into weightlifting, you know, they look at their Flex magazine, they look at something, they go to the gym for the first time. I'll never forget, like I'm 15 years old, 16 years old, um, go to the Buffalo Grove Fitness Center, BGFC, and I have the same group of friends, three or four of us, that we just want to you know, start working out, get big, mm -hmm. you know, lift weights. You're one of the first faces I ever saw. I remember the first time I went to a GNC and I saw your beautiful mug on a uh, muscle tech bottle. Like, how the heck did you get into muscle building for, from your background? Uh, man, it's a long story. So, you know, I started, in central Massachusetts, I grew up on a farm. You know, my, I'm the youngest of seven kids. And I was actually about 12 when I picked up my first bodybuilding book. And I know in this era, like, we don't talk about the magazines as much. And, uh, you know, I picked up a book and I saw this picture of Chris Dickerson, who was a former Mr. Olympia champion way back in the 70s, early 80s. And uh, that's, I was like, told my oldest brother, I said, man, I want to look like this. I was 12. And I started reading the books and same thing. I walked into GNC at 16 and bought my first bodybuilding instructional book called uh, Beyond Built. It was by a guy named Bob Paris. And I just saw the physiques and I was like, man, this is like perfect to me. And he was a good looking guy. And I saw, you know, pictures of him on the beach in California. And, you know, coming from Massachusetts, like that wasn't, you know, that wasn't how we lived over there. So I had this vision of being in California. And I think a lot of the, 
the thought process and, you know, with the lifting weights and seeing the books and these guys lifting on Muscle Beach, including back in the Arnold era, that kind of gave me like that mindset to be, man, I should try lifting weights. And luckily I developed quite a body working on the farm and we actually did concrete work. My family business is concrete. My brothers still run that business. And uh, I had a great physique even in high school. I was an athlete, uh, one of the strongest kids uh, in you know bench press, squat, deadlift. And I didn't even really lift weights. I just toyed around just for football. And uh, I made this, this pact. I said, you know, I'm gonna join the gym at 18. Joined the gym my 18th birthday, saved up 300 bucks and, and joined this local Gold's gym in Worcester, Massachusetts. And I started my journey as a bodybuilder and you know, won everything pretty much uh, until I got my pro card at 23 and started making a living at it. So right away, when you first started, did you instantly know, like, wow, I can make this my career? I, I had this I had this thought that because I what I saw in the books that bodybuilders were wealthy because I saw, like, them posing with sports cars and, you know, hot girls on the side. Those were the magazine covers at the time. So for me, I had that, like, wow, this is how this really is. Little did I know, I mean – very few and far between make a career of it because financially uh, the shows didn't pay a ton of money, but the money was in the endorsements. And you had mentioned, you know, the the supplements and the supplement game has advanced so much. And even, you know, when you were probably a teenager looking at, you know, the GNC and the shelves of vitamins and supplements, like that was oh four, five, six, seven, like those supplement market had exploded in sports nutrition. I don't know what year it was that you... No, you're dead on. It was like 2006. I remember yeah. like the big thing back then for me in high school was creatine. Yeah. So, I mean, we had Celtech, which was yeah. a product I endorsed. And, uh, you know, I, I just thought, hey, you know what? These these guys make money. And I remember people telling me there's no money in it. But I said, well, I'm kind of hard-headed. I said, I'll make, I'll find a way, right? So I started early. I mean, I, I was advised by some really great people around me. And I started to, you know, demand high dollar if I wanted to be a part of an endorsement type uh, program. And I started doing mail order where I would literally have one picture, one T-shirt, and I would handwrite letters to fans. This is prior to the Internet. And all my articles in the magazines would have a P.O. box at the end. So I have people write me fan mail and I'd send out like a like a sheet and say, if you want to purchase a picture for ten dollars and a T-shirt for twenty dollars. And that's how it all started. I mean, my whole branding started that way, and I would handwrite letters to the fans. And then, of course, when AOL popped up and you had dial-up, and I started doing emails, and I started a website in 2000, and you know, you slowly started to transform into what today is social media. You were building a brand before building a brand was cool. Yeah, and and I was getting booked for appearances, and you know, getting FaceTime with the fans, and. I still think FaceTime, even to this day, is super important. Like that's, if you asked, the big, biggest success, success of my career was definitely the FaceTime I spent at expos, guest appearances, traveling, which was very taxing because as a bodybuilder, like we trained. I mean, it was twenty four seven. It's not like, you know, with with fighting, for example, you say, okay, I'm dedicating, you know, ten weeks to training. Like it was all year even though we might diet down and be strict for four months, like we never stop because as you know, if you stop lifting weights, like a lot of that is water and 
you know, what you do on a daily basis. So it just, you know, it's consistent. And that's, you know, where I was just, I excelled because of my work ethic growing up on the farm. And I, I was just really mindful of like, I'm going to make a living at this. So you're about 5'10". It's your yep. peak. You're like, what, 250, 260? On stage, I was about 300 pounds off season. So we gained, you know, up to 40, 50 pounds of water, some body fat, but I stayed actually pretty lean. So, I mean, biggest, I won the Mr. Olympia title at 273 my first time. So it's extreme weight for uh, what, you know, what the Mr. Olympia is at this point. What was the extreme diet you had to follow? Uh, between six to 7,000 calories a day, seven meals a day, five pounds of meat a day, uh, 30 eggs for breakfast, 1,000 carbohydrates a day. I mean, you ate like a machine. You ate, I always have this saying, and it's quoted in our, in our kind of arena is, I ate for function, not for taste, because nothing tastes good when you eat super healthy, in my opinion. I tell Helen that all the time. Like they all, you like everything's made in like abs. Your body, like eighty ninety percent of its nutrition, it's all in the kitchen. Yeah, I, I would say eighty percent. If you wanted to, I, I hate putting percentages yeah. on things because, you know, we'd always say, well, what do you think? Uh, what percent were you on stage? And they'd say, oh, he was ninety five percent or ninety, and you know, so many variables. But I would say, you know, eighty percent of what we do is the nutrition factor. So. Like I can sit here and name off like I ate this much red meat or whatever else, but it really, it's it's individual, meaning like every person, depending on how much weight you carry and muscle, you're going to need more calories. So what would you estimate would be the weekly grocery bill to fit all this type of uh, planning? It's hard to say. I, I always said I spent about 100 grand a year just on food. Wow. But in the beginning you know, growing up in Massachusetts, I grew up in a very rural area. And I mentioned the farm. My brother still raises cattle for meat. And uh, I would buy a whole cow at a time. So I would slaughter a cow and I would have a whole freezer packed. And what about like off season? Does it vary like calorie wise or what you eat? Yeah, you have to cut down the carbohydrates when you train for a competition. And like I mentioned, six or 7,000 calories. I might cut down to like 4,500 for a contest over 16 weeks. But I think the main thing is is when you have to lean down, like off-season, I wouldn't do cardiovascular work. So I wouldn't do like treadmill. And this doesn't involve running. It's more like I do step mill or elliptical or just at a steady pace for like 45 minutes at a time. I do that twice a day. So for... Uh, off season, I would do none of that. I would just be strictly weight training and you'd get bulky. They call it off season. And then once you started prepping, you know, you'd, you'd incorporate cardiovascular. So you'd actually retain that muscle, cut the calories down some, but you'd basically starve yourself to take off the body fat, but leave the muscle there. So the goal is every year to gain, you know, one or two or three or four pounds of muscle, which is very, very difficult, especially as you're advanced. And that's why, like, I was so great at what I did because out of the gate, you know, I was a teenage national champion, 19, best in the country. I mean, I, I competed about 215. When I won my pro card two years later, I was 248 on stage. So I was able to gain a lot of muscle mass just because of my frame. And that allowed me to be, you know, dominant on the stage because I out-muscled people. And I was able to gather the condition, too, on top of that. Wow, I have so much respect for what you guys do. And 
for example, what about like now? Because you're still so fit and lean, like, do you still follow a pretty strict diet? I do actually. Um, you know, now meal prep exists, which it did not back then. So, you know, Trifecta, who's, you know, involved in a lot of uh, the different areas, like I'm a part of that program. So I, you know, have meals sent out and I still eat about four or five portion, smaller portion meals a day. I've lost about 60 pounds and I still train, you know, probably seven days a week. I do more cardiovascular work now instead of just weight training because I'm not trying to get bigger, but I'm just trying to maintain and tone what I have. So something that's kind of gotten big in the past decade, you know, since your heyday, I think CrossFit's kind of exploded. Mm -hmm. What do you make of the kind of the CrossFit workouts? Because I know that it involves a lot of Olympic type lifting, but I know the principles probably vary a lot from you. What's your take on kind of that side of things? Yeah, so uh, I think CrossFit has kind of spun off of kind of what we've done. You know, it's cross between powerlifting and bodybuilding, whatever. But, you know, where we train with more repetition, so everything that I pick up or push is for 10 or 12 repetitions where, you know, CrossFit, it involves more, um, more agility training. So someone might have like, uh, I think the injuries are more apparent actually in CrossFit, especially like ACLs, that kind of stuff, because you have to be pretty athletic too. And you can't be as bulky as bodybuilding, like your weight can't be extreme. Like I'm talking about getting off season 300 pounds, like that doesn't exist in CrossFit, right? Kind of hard to do a muscle up at 300 Yeah, pounds. and the muscle ups, I mean, they're trying to do a lot of reps. So you gotta be a lighter body weight to do that. Even, you know, at 300 pounds, it was really hard for me to do pull-ups. Um, where I would have to do more exercise, like a lat pull down that, you know, my my body could actually be positioned and held down. Uh, but it's kind of worked off and I, I like, listen, I, I love anything that's active, but I think bodybuilding, you know, you're, you basically don't want to create that crazy heart rate when you weight train because you'll burn too many calories. You know, that's the biggest issue with bodybuilding is keeping the calories uh, burning but don't burn too much that you can't gain the mass. What would you say are some of the like pros and cons of when you started your career in bodybuilding to now during this social media era? And like you even mentioned where there's like meal preps and whatnot as well. I think, you know, the misconceptions of bodybuilding, like, listen, there's, you know, obviously steroids and all these things are apparent in today's society. And I think that you know, people look at the bodybuilders because they're so overblown in size and they don't, they don't, and they look at the supplementation and, and listen, supplementation is advanced like crazy. Uh, but also the internet has a lot of false information on there. So you look at even the diets like the intermittent fasting or like kind of like everyone's on this binge eating cereal after they work out like sugar cereal because they try to spike their insulin levels. Like it was very simplistic back in my era where you read in the magazines and the, the funny thing is, and you can attest to this, you know, you'd read a Jay Cutler article and it would be like, okay, he, I just mentioned like he buys a cow and he sits around and cooks his meals and everything's portioned out. And I weigh every ounce of meat, every carbohydrate, every amount of fat that goes in my body. And I literally take naps during the day and my whole day was committed. I mean, I woke up at six and I was in bed at nine every day and I wasn't paid to necessarily do that because I was contracted, but I treated my job like it was like a real job, right? And I think that there's just a lot of misinformation out there uh, that 
you know, the younger generation doesn't have the knowledge to know whether it's right or wrong. And it's crazy too, because like what you just said, when I was in high school, it was those magazines. We didn't like surf the internet or look at these YouTube videos. I just remember I'd come home from school. I would take a nap before we went to the gym. Cause I'm like, oh, take a nap because you're, HGH will mm -hmm. naturally produce, your human growth uh, hormone levels will produce, and uh, that's why some people like to work out, I guess, early in the morning too, you know, that's when your testosterone levels are the highest. And we just live by like articles that you would write or other people would, would mm -hmm. input, and that was the thing. Yeah, and, and that's the thing, like we talk about men and testosterone, like meal timing and how you train and your sleep patterns have a lot to do with your testosterone. And as a young kid, you're pretty much overblown with testosterone. But once you get over 25 or 30, like you, that starts to dissipate. So that's not talked about a lot too. I feel like men and testosterone, it's going down as we progress as humans. Yeah. And I mean, that's like, I, I'll be honest, like I have a supplement company and you know, my number one product that's sold is a testosterone, a natural booster uh, with herbs and everything like that allows people to, you know, get a steady testosterone because it's it's life. Like you don't understand, you're, you can't sleep if your testosterone's off, you can't function. And it's very, it's a problem that every male faces, especially with the stresses, the off sleeping patterns, someone that's busy, like it just wears you down. 100%. Yeah, well, not saying I can relate to, but <laughs> what can help? I mean, I'm sure there's men out there listening and watching right now that are curious. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I've read, feel free to chime in, like Tim Ferriss, The 4-Hour mm -hmm. Body. I really like the things he's done, like even simple things like having almonds at night and stuff like that have really helped, I think. Like little, I mean, there's little things here and there and kettlebell workouts, like, I don't know. Malnutrition is 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 the biggest issue we face. It's just like the, the diabetes and the overweight with the young children, the pandemic. I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a bigger problem than you can imagine because people don't know nutrition. And I'm gonna give an example. Like when I first started bodybuilding, my dad was, I would say he was in his 60, my oldest brother's, you know, over 60 years old, but my dad was about 65. And I remember I got into bodybuilding and I was like, you know, I need to eat protein and carbs and we would, you know, we have chicken that laid eggs and I was eating all the eggs from the chickens. My dad was upset about it. And I'm like, I need my protein. And then I'd mentioned carbohydrates. And my dad says, what's a protein? What's a carbohydrate? He ate one meal a day, my dad. He was 135 pounds. Uh, but he didn't know anything about nutrition. And I think <laughs> we don't learn a lot, even in like high school. And I don't know what it's like now, but no one ever taught us like, okay, this is good and this is bad. I mean, you'd eat lunch at school, you'd eat breakfast. I've had donuts when I went to high school, graduating high school. Like I would just eat like four donuts before I went to school. And to look back now, I mean, I haven't had a donut in years, like years, probably since high school. I think the biggest killer is this. Everywhere you drive, every corner, it's the fast food. The number one killer to me, it's not alcohol, it's not weed, tobacco, it's sugar. Mm -hmm. But sugar is too much money involved. The industries, the, the monopolies, way too much money. That's why they'll sponsor and everything you, you stream or you watch TV. It's going to be an ad for fast food or anything like that. But because there's so much money involved with it, they don't want to tell you to, hey, you know, lay off on the Arby's, lay off on the Wendy's. They don't want to do that. And it's cheap, right? It's cheap, it's cheap but I'll be honest, like sugar is the worst killer there is. Um, is. 
It causes, causes plaque in the heart also, which people don't realize. So you drink those sodas, and everything is loaded with sugars. Like, I mean, even some of the fruits, there's a lot of natural sugar in fruits, and that's why you just really need to learn about nutrition. So if you're asking for a simple answer, like how can I perfect, I mean, it's it's mealtime. Eating a great, great breakfast is important. I don't care how busy someone is. Get up 30 minutes early, even if you just have some oatmeal and you know, some egg whites or whatever you can drink now because we didn't even have pasteurized egg whites. Like you can drink egg whites now, get your protein, but you should be eating every three hours portionate meals. So that's why meal prep is so important now. And it's just what we've been doing for over 20, 25 years is, you know, the meal prep we did at home and now they offer that. And some of these companies are just, I mean, Trifecta is a multi, multi-million dollar brand. And you know, it really, it changes people's lives. For sure. Because 7-Eleven is not going to have the right meal prep for people, right? Only those, what, pizzas to go and and donuts? Yeah. I think I remember as a kid I had Lunchables, too. Of course. I loved Lunchables. <laughs> those were some of my addicting. favorite. Yeah, those were always fun, for sure. <laughs> uh, we, uh, you're a big fan of combat sports, too. I know you have a good relationship with Cody Garbrandt. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. He didn't have the best result against Rob Font, but former Bantamweight champion. You mentioned your father, 135 pounds. Cody fights at 135. And I, I think he's a trifecta athlete, too. He is, yeah. And uh, Rob Font's actually from the area where I grew up. Yes, New England cartel. I think he, yeah, I think he actually was from a, a place called Lemonster, Mass. I saw somewhere, and I lived in Sterling, which is literally the next town over where no one knows what that is. Um, the only thing about Sterling, Mass is Mary Had a Little Lamb nursery rhyme derived from there, for real. Everybody knows, Fun fact. That. That's everybody yeah. knows that. Like Mary Sawyer lived in Sterling, Mass. So For sure. Uh, but for Cody, man, what do you think? Uh, you know, I have a good relationship with him. Where do you think his head's at? Yeah, right I mean, now? we spoke after the fight. And, uh, you know, he's he's just, you know, he took a day or two to, to kind of take everything in. And he knows what he needs to do. I think, you know, he, you know, he's obviously facing probably the toughest division there is, right? Yeah. I mean, we keep hearing about these up-and-coming people. And, I mean, he ran through that whole division and, of course, won the title rather quickly. And, you know, and then he had a, a downswing a little bit with uh, all the TJ fights. And, you know, I felt he was on the uh, on the comeback a little bit. You know, and I don't know if COVID and some of the injuries affected him a little bit. You know, his training has been, I think, kind of up and down a little bit. But... You know, he does have that focus back, and I think, you know, you know, w- between camps, you know, I know he's going to Jersey, and he, he trains out in California. So, you know, I think he's, you know, this next one, whatever the next one is, is, is going to be, he's going to just recover a little bit, and um, he'll be back. I, I think he'll win another title, honestly. So do you follow a lot of, like, the big fights? I do. You know, I used to go to a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, I used to be invited to a lot of these uh you know, COVID's really sidelined yeah. a lot, but I remember going and seeing, you know, Forrest Griffin, Chuck Liddell, uh, Randy Couture fights, uh, everyone, Matt Hughes. I mean, I used to go to all those, and I followed it rather closely because they were they were really spread out then. Like, UFC fights weren't every week. Like, it's hard to keep up now because, and you guys covering that must be a lot more difficult because you have to say, okay, I'm going here this week. I mean, it's kind of, I feel it's kind of like bodybuilding. Like, now there's a lot of amateur shows. So I bounce a lot and, uh, you know, I don't follow it as close because it seems like guys, there's very few that are like dominant. There's a few guys that are dominant in different divisions, but I love seeing the heavyweights, especially. I mean, that's kind of, I've always been a heavyweight in what I did. So, 
uh, it's pretty crazy to see that the uh, athleticism in some of these guys. And some of these heavyweights still aren't nearly as big as you. I mean, that's just yeah, how but it they're is. Yeah, t- they're taller, you know. I mean, it's uh, – but some have impressive. I mean, just that they have the speed and the uh, the oh. ability that they have. Oh, Francis Ngannou, yeah. like a freak of nature. And I got to meet him uh, when he was training out of the UFC, uh, the new facility over there after last Olympia like two years ago. We went over there to shoot for trifecta actually, and uh, he was training there. And nice guy, I mean. But it's great to see him, you know, on his way up, you know, and coming what he's done. You know, it's pretty incredible coming from where he came and growing up and whatnot. For sure. And to your point before, there it's, there is like a fight every weekend. This was the first time though in maybe years that they didn't have a fight on Memorial Day weekend. Mm-hmm. But uh, we had to make a decision this week, uh, UFC Fight Night. Ironically, two heavyweights are headlining that card, Augusta Sakai and uh, Jarzinho Rosenstrike, or the circus show, Floyd Mayweather and Logan Paul. And I guess we chose Miami, so we're doing the red eye tomorrow night to Miami for that fight, and then going straight to Phoenix for UFC 263, Adesanya Vittori too. That's going to be a great card. So is uh, so is all the places opening up now? I mean, I know Florida's yeah. open, but... F- Florida's open, and Vegas is now completely open. Texas has been open. I think areas like New York, Chicago, they're slower to open up, those bigger cities. Well, I saw that the Celtics had a full capacity, I think 17,000 at the, the Boston Garden, so that was great to see. Uh, but, you know, this, this Floyd... Uh, Paul fight should be pretty interesting. Yeah. What do you think of the Paul brothers? I mean, they're great marketers. Yeah. You know, I, I have a lot of people that run in circles with these guys, and, uh, you know, it's pretty incredible what they've done. I don't follow their stuff as close as, you know, a lot of the people do, but it's a different demographic, so I think it's bringing a lot of eyes on the, the fight game that might not have been there, and I think because of lackluster boxing that we've seen over the years, which I... You know, lately, I mean, there's been some pretty good, I mean, pretty good champions. I felt like some decent boxing fights, but we don't see as much anymore. I mean, the UFC's definitely done a lot for the combat sports. It's a pull and tug on both sides because with the UFC and Dana White, he's going to make sure the best fighters fight the best fighters. In boxing, you have so many mouths to feed, so many different promoters, so that's why you don't see the best fighters fight the best fighters. And we talk about this all the time, like you got to make an Errol Spence, Terrence Crawford. Uh, Terrence Crawford fight. But even though I'm really excited to see Errol Spence fight Manny Pacquiao here in Vegas in August, cannot wait for that fight. It should be Manny's last fight. But I think that the politics opened the door for the Paul brothers to come into the boxing world. Yeah, and it's funny because they're attacking the UFC fighters, which means, okay, I mean, there's there's something there that Dana's done too in marketing this whole thing. And it's just incredible. Wives watch him expand this thing from, you know, kind of uh, barbaric to – you know, through all the media channels now, you know, being, you know, a crazy pay-per-view and, you know, representing on, you know, what ES, who's, who is that now, ESPN or, or show? Yeah, uh, ESPN. ESPN carries it. So, like, what he's done is amazing and uh, a lot of respect. I mean, Vegas is super, super proud to have someone like him uh, in this space. But the Paul brothers, uh, you know, teamed up with Floyd. I mean, Floyd's the best at what he does, too. I mean... You can talk about, we, talk, you know, I remember watching him box, and they talked about this Pacquiao matchup forever, and it was lingering year after year. And then, of course, when it happened, everyone's like, wow, they're not at their prime. And, and Pacquiao the, got knocked out. But the money, the money, like Floyd just knew that, okay, this is what it is. It's just like the McGregor thing, you know. It's just he just knows exactly when to – 
when to pull it in. No, but so they fought in 2015, but didn't Pacquiao get knocked out before they fought? Mm-hmm. So yes. they probably yeah. could have made even a little bit yeah. more money. Than I think it was exactly. still one of the top pay-per-views. And, sure. and listen, we talk about skewed numbers. Uh, I mean, listen, the McGregor thing was exciting, right? And I don't know how much Floyd played it, but McGregor looked okay in there. Yeah. Like better than I thought, but I, I wonder if Floyd kind of... You know, maybe coasted, but yeah, McGregor, the first four or five rounds looked like the better boxer yeah. in there, but then obviously fatigue and Floyd Money Mayweather, the best defensive boxer ever, did his thing, tired him out, TKO 10th round, right? They, they stopped yeah. in the 10th. But that's that's kind of where we're at with that. Um, I just... And now Woodley, Tyron Woodley's going to fight Jake Paul. Jake Paul. Interesting. It's smart, but you know something? I will say this from from us who watch strategy and everything like that too. These MMA fighters, you have to worry about so much. You don't have to worry about just being punched in the face. You have to worry about the takedown Mm -hmm. and all the different aspects. So if you're a boxer, you go to the body, um, you know, they're going to drop their hands, these fighters, because instinctually they could think about the takedown and stuff like that. You're going to leave openings and someone gets knocked out. Yeah, and Woodley's a striker, so, I mean, he should be able to go in there and box. Uh, Definitely striker, but a wrestling background. That's his base. That's Yeah, well, they're not going to wrestle. We know that. We know that. Um, But, you know, Woodley's coming off quite a few losses here, and you just got to wonder where the confidence is at, but I'm sure because it's, you know, it's a YouTuber to him, and, you know. And the storyline with Ben Askren being his good friend and everything. Point is this, do you think Tyrone Woodley, for the MMA community, he gets the job done, he puts him on his back, he stops the high train of Jake Paul? I don't know, I think this Paul guy's pretty good, man. Yeah. I know he's getting a lot of flack because, you know, I feel like he's kind of like a McGregor character a little bit. Everyone tries to be McGregor now, right? Oh, for sure, and he definitely, definitely has the And McGregor just rolls with it. I don't know, this guy's just so on point all the time and but here's what I love about it, too, because he was getting called out by Tommy Fury, the younger brother of the heavyweight champion Tyson Fury, um, if I have to be politically correct, the WBC and lineal heavyweight champion because Anthony Joshua has belts, too. But he calls out F- Tommy Fury, who's like what? He's young in his career, 5-0, and 6-0, but fighting, I guess, tomato cans. And he was going to fight this guy who was 0-14 as a professional boxer. Jake Ball calls him out. And I guess Frank Warren and, um, and his Queensberry promotions who represent mm-hmm. Tommy Fury, they went on and said, no, he was never going to fight this guy. And then this guy who he's supposed to fight comes on and says, Jake Ball, I want to fight you. You ruined my payday with Tommy Fury. But... It's basically he's pointing out the bullshit in boxing. It's that people pad their records early on in their mm-hmm. career. So the way that the Paul brothers are thinking, or specifically Jake, because Logan, you know, he's just going for Floyd Mayweather. Who knows if he boxes again after this? Um, he's thinking like, look, I'll pad my record with MMA fighters or NBA stars or other YouTubers. I don't have to do it the traditional boxing way. Why not? Yeah, uh, I, I'm. I'm with that. I don't. I don't hate the guy for it. Because in this day and era, it's like, you know, they're leaving with big paychecks, right? And uh, yes, it's dangerous. I mean, what every time these guys go in the ring, no matter if it's boxing or if it's MMA or whatever, uh, bare knuckle fighting. I mean, we there's always risks, and uh, you know. But I I love to see guys make money. I love to see the success, and I love to see the underdogs win. You know, I battled that for a long time in my career. So sometimes when you know, there's that doubt. I mean, it's just like Logan fighting Floyd. You know, he's a lot taller. He's a lot heavier. You know, and Floyd's a little older than he was when we saw him last. 
but man, he's on point always. <laughs> Didn't you have to follow uh, Ronnie Coleman shoes too? Yeah, I mean, I mean that's uh, who's the greatest ever. I mean, yeah. I'll, I'll go on record. I mean, we all sit here and look at bodybuilders and who we admire, and this guy was my idol. So for me to come up and have him as my idol and then become a rival. And then, of course, like have to beat him. And when I did beat him, I felt bad because not only did I beat him, I beat, you know, he was going for record number nine at the time, which is, you know, there's only been eight victories straight by two champions. And he, he and Lee, Lee Haney had, you know, each eight wins. So I held that from that happening. You know, he's going to break that record. And, you know, I was the first guy to defeat Mr. Olympia on stage. Never been done in history still to this day. And, and uh, you know, to have, you know, all those second, I was second four times to him where most guys would have given up. You know, it seemed like there was a curse of the second place of Mr. Olympias. If you go back to like Rich Gaspari and, you know, Kevin Leverone, Sean Ray, all these guys, they never end up getting the title flex wheeler. Like they all pursued that title and they fell back uh, where I was one of the ones that was able to leap forward and actually win the title. And to do it in my hometown of Vegas and like have everyone behind me. And by that point, you know, you as the underdog, you build up a huge momentum and uh, it took me weeks to realize that it happened. And, uh, you know, to this day, it was still one of the greatest moments in our sport history and probably 50 years from now will be recognized even further. It seems like the further I get away from my career, the more respect I get. It's funny how that works. It's people just don't appreciate things in the moment. And then when they don't have it anymore and time progresses, like the nostalgia kind of settles in and people start to appreciate it more. Yeah, because, you know, the kids now on social media, like a lot of it's not real, but in the magazines, someone like you who read the books, like they displayed us as like superheroes and superhuman and everything was in a perfect world, right? And we all had all our uh, stuff behind the scenes. You know, it wasn't, life's never perfect for anyone, no matter what level they're at, right? So when someone makes you out to be perfect, you know, it puts a different aura when people meet you or follow the career, right? And the unfortunate thing about social media, like you can admire someone and then you start following you like, mm, I don't know if I like this person. It's weird because Helen and I are kind of in the beginning stages of really being recognized by fans. Um, like we weren't just in these UFC fights in Jacksonville and Houston, people posing for photos and stuff like that and like shoving their phone in the face, schmo, do it, how we do it and stuff. and. I can't imagine living a life for decades, like probably how you have to live where people just pose or, or they look at you as this superhuman and we're all human. We all put our pants on one leg at a time. But for you, I mean, for suits, that's a different story, mm -hmm. I assume. But, you know, it, I just don't know how it's hard for me to grasp that whole concept. I mean, with success comes a different mindset. Yeah. So as you progress, I mean, if you, if you told me at 18 when I started, I was a shy country kid. And I remember standing on stage and shaking, you know, and, uh, you know, I was winning. I remember guest posing, being nervous as hell up there, like, oh, my gosh. And I was paid to be there because I just didn't have the experience. And then I mean, starting to get behind a microphone and have to do it, you know, on stage. And, and I was only in front of, you know, 500 people or 1,000 people to eventually when you're on the Olympia stage doing speeches, you know, with 10,000 people, and then you're going to seminars and you're traveling worldwide. And, and then of course you get behind a microphone for social media and you've got millions of people, you learn to adjust. And then you realize that, wow, I'm actually changing people's lives. And 
you know, what I, I look back on the accolades of what I did, right, all these awards and titles, and we can talk for days about that, but, like, it's the people now that appreciate you for kind of the message that you provided and the motivation. I talk about the underdog and, you know, when I lost and, you know, remember I, I won the Olympian, lost it, came back to win it. No one's ever done that in history either. So for me, it's just, it's incredible to change, like you change people's lives. And and listen, 75%, 80% of the people that come to see me today, like I go to this weekend to Idaho for an appearance, they are people with weight challenges. These aren't people that, oh, I want to be the next Jay Cutler bodybuilder. These are people that lost 50, 100, 150, 200, 250 pounds because they picked up a, an article, whether it was in a book or so, social media, or they read something that I said that changed their lives and said, you know what, tomorrow I'm going to wake up and make a change in my life. And they did it. At what point of your career did you think to yourself, you know what, I'm successful. I've made it. Um, I think when I won the Olympia, because the day you start, like I never had this vision of being Mr. Olympia because that's the the pinnacle. Like you don't go any bigger than that in my sport. And I didn't realize I could win it until the first time I got second to Ronnie Coleman. It was controversial. I actually was almost... I should have, could have won that contest if the judging was correct. I still call it the judging because I was ahead of in the pre-judging. And when I won the Olympia, like everything flashed for me, like the whole journey from 12 years old to 16 to going to GNC and then 18 competing for the first time and then, of course, getting the pro card and all the second to last at my first Olympia. You know, I was almost dead last. And uh, I realized, like, wow, I've reached what I had, had set out to do. So what do I, what's now? Like, what what did, what am I working for for achievement? And the truth is, I got to the top, and the amazing thing, and I, and I'm very transparent. I kind of said, this is it. Like, I expect more, and it just shows my mentality where I'm never satisfied with what I do. And I've said this a million times in interviews and like that's the amazing thing about my life is no matter what I do or achieve or like I'm never satisfied. It's never enough. We, we both feel that same way. And Earl Nightingale in the 1950s was a salesperson and then used radio at Fireside Chats. And I think you can YouTube it for anyone listening. It's called The Strangest Secret. It's two parts. But he defined success as the progressive realization of a worthy goal or ideal. And if you break that down and what that means, it's progressive, it's constantly changing, and it's worthy, goal, or ideal. So you always have this mindset that you are working for something, and it's meaningful enough to you to constantly go after it. Regardless if you get there or not, you have a purpose and a meaning to go out and get after it. And I just, I, I, it's something I always remind myself to this day. I think that's what makes someone great, uh, is their, their vision never stops. So when you asked me, like, wow, I'm successful, uh, I think I realize it today, you know, a, a lot more than I did even when I won because, you know, here I am retired eight years and still in demand like I am and traveling the world. And 
and uh you know people still stop me left and right more than ever social media has blown bodybuilding up way past the magazines you could ever imagine that's what i wanted to get into like with social media and we're in 2021 right now like walk me through the steps of what it would be for someone who's starting to train and getting into competitions and being a bodybuilder and how it's different now versus when you were going you know up. you don't need the accolades anymore like there's so many personalities and the people that can get on social media and have a message to the people that follow them and all you gotta say is i like this guy i mean it's kind of like when you picked up a book and you read, well, Jay Cutler buys a cow or, you know, he goes and, you know, his family's youngest of seven kids. It's, it was like relative to a lot of people, right? Growing up in Central Mass, 6,000 people in my town. Remember, majority of people aren't like living, growing up in Venice Beach, California and seeing Arnold at the local deli, like growing, you know what I mean? So for us, it was like when I got to recognize, like I saw Keanu Reeves at Gold's Gym Venice or Kobe Bryant or you know, all these guys, like Magic Johnson was there. And I remember being like, oh my gosh, like I never imagined I'd see the guys I saw on TV. And, you know, it was amazing. And I went furniture shopping one day and saw Bruce Willis there with his daughter. And I was like, he was like my hero. I watched Die Hard about, you know, a million times, you know, and I honestly, what I started looking at when I began bodybuilding, you know, besides those books was Sylvester Stallone and John Claude Van Damme. So when I got to meet both those guys, and the funny thing, both those guys said to me, I'm a fan, meaning they were uh, my fans. So I was totally blown away because here I am at 12 years old watching Rocky IV and, you know, Rocky beat up, you know, the Russian, Ivan Drago. She still has not seen the Rocky movies. It blows my mind. And How, how are you even covering <laughs> combat I, sports? And even, David, come on, whatever. <laughs> I watched it without you that day. Oh, oh yeah. Oh that day. No, I think I made her see I think I made her at least see the training scene from Rocky Four. We I, unbelievable. Because like, we have interviewed Delph Lundgren before. Yeah, yeah. And I mean like He's Rocky. big in the yeah, he's he's yeah. big into bodybuilding arenas. But Stallone had a supplement company and you know, I won the Arnold Classic, which was Schwarzenegger's show. It's second biggest title in, in professional bodybuilding and we're in Columbus, Ohio and I was going to eat at Morton's after this was two thousand four, actually. Excellent steakhouse. And uh I walked in and this guy came running, hey Jay, someone wants to talk to you. And I walked over to a limo and out stepped Sylvester Stallone and he says, Jay, I'm a huge fan. And at the time he was doing the contender like shortly after in Las Vegas, they had that show, you probably don't remember, but he had a boxing show and it was like whoever could get to the final rounds, whatever. So he invited me to come and it was just amazing because this is the guy that I idolized, right? In a similar situation, I was outside Gold Venice one day, and I was walking across the parking lot. It was very quiet there, and I hear this guy, Jay, Jay, you know, and all of a sudden I turn around and see this guy coming towards me, and as it gets close, I'm like, oh, shit, that's, that's John Claude Van Damme, and he stuck his hand out, and he says, I'm a huge fan. So for me, like, watch Bloodsport and those kind of movies and see, like, this guy, like, it was just incredible, you know. So you want to talk about when you know you made it. Like, th that, was a, that was actually a moment, so I, I kind of – if, if I said I won the Olympia, I knew I was successful. But when those people recognize you, it's pretty incredible. Do you ever feel pressure, for example, of knowing like anytime you walk out the door, you're going to be recognized and to always like even if you have a bad day or a good day, it's like, you know, the fan comes up to you and I love it. You know why I love it? Because it's always positive. No one ever stops me and and says anything negative. 
you know, that's which is a crazy thing because I, I get more questions like, oh, do people ever like talk about like how muscular you are and this and that? And maybe I've fallen back now, so I I, I look, you know, I still look somewhat the part, but not like I did when I was three hundred. But it's always a positive message, and it makes me feel good that I could impact people. You know, coming from where I come from, man, it's like, uh, you know, like I said, 6,000 people, youngest of seven kids, wondering. I had the same thoughts that most kids. Am I ever going to be successful in anything? What I remember at the crossroad at 18 when I joined the gym, I was going to school to be a police officer. I studied criminal justice and got my degree doing that. But my family wanted me to work in the concrete. And I wanted to do something different. And I found the gym. And in those two hours I spent in the gym, I trained from eight to 10 at night, every night, because I went to school during the day and I worked a part-time security job, making five bucks an hour. My paycheck was $150 a week working 40 hours. I, I was lost in those weights and I felt no pressure whatsoever. And that's why I fell in love with bodybuilding because back then it was a stress reliever. And you can probably relate to this so much, like you, your mind gets in the weights and it's hard to explain unless you know it. Like you just forget about everything. Well, here's the thing. And I have to interject every morning. He told me ever since we first started dating, he's like, I need to get a workout in every morning and you can't interrupt my workout. It's like the me time. And let's just say I've accidentally messed up and interrupted him before and I won't do it again. You need your me time. It's a meditation. Yes. It's hard to, it's, it doesn't make sense, but I walk my neighborhood and I, ha, I have a community that has 20 homes. So my, I have a circle. I can't go outside my gates because people stop me. Like I go on the main roads and I like fans would stop and it would interrupt my meditation. So I stay in my circle and my neighbors think I'm a little crazy because I walk like 20 times around. But I always post on social media my meditation or I ride my longboard. Like I actually ride a skateboard. And I find that time is like, it's just, it makes me absent from anything that I have going on. And of course I have stresses, but the gym is still my savior. I mean, I train seven days a week, which is totally against protocol if you're trying to be a bodybuilder because you need recovery. And I still train seven days a week. My rule of thumb is sweat every single day. So whether it's weight training, whether it's plyometrics, whether it's yoga, whether, you know, it's a jog, you know, it doesn't matter what it is, sweat every single day. And that is kind of what makes me feel great. But, you know, you are such an inspiration for even just much upbringing to becoming the schmo. I mean, there's so many places to start, but I used to just quick story as I used to intern for free at Comcast Sports at Chicago. When I graduated college, I, my, you know, the path was to get into break a top 150 market to be a traditional sportscaster, weekday news anchor, weekend sports anchor, try to work your way up to Bristol, Connecticut, ESPN. Far from the dream now. I, I wouldn't change the path where it is now, but I picked up two degrees in personal training by no means to, I mean, I know, understand fitness, but by no means am I an expert. I didn't study kinesiology. I studied broadcast communications, but I picked it up so I can make money. And that's where my sanctuary, and at the time I was doing triathlons, I was training like women that were doing running and, and races and different types of exercises, but that's how I made money, by going to what I was comfortable with in the gym. And I did that for six months before I moved out to California to pursue the career that I'm in now. But to your point, like I find the fitness world 
like literally my savior. And like, I, it was something I could always fall back on for six, seven years. I made sure I kept those degrees. So if all else failed, I could still train people on the side. Yeah, it sounds like you diversified though, because you mentioned the different facets of like what you do. Like I did, I did Pilates, I did kettlebell training. I was one of the few bodybuilders that stepped outside the circle of the uh, the monotonous lifting weights, right? Uh, because eventually, like you know, the routines. I mean, this how many times can you curl something or bench right. press, right? So I started doing things to work the core. And, and listen, I watched the advancement of all these things like kettlebells back didn't exist pilates didn't exist i mean yoga no one was doing yoga maybe they were in ancient times or whatever and it was just underneath everything i remember i mean we talk about foods sushi didn't even exist like yeah. where i grew up you never heard of sushi there were no sushi restaurants and you know i moved to california it was like culture shock of like everyone eats sushi and i'm like man people eat that raw fish like that and you know, you would do the, you adapt to all those things, but it really, it, it put myself in a different realm. And uh, even my massage, my tissue therapy sessions, like I'd spend six hours a week working with therapists between uh, dry needling, uh, neuromuscular therapy. And I believe that all goes into developing your body too for recovery. And of course, uh, keeping the muscles pliable. Cause as you build more dense muscle mass, you, your muscles get tighter. So stretching is important. I had a stretch coach three days a week. Um, I did a lot of sauna work to flush lactic acid. You know, people want to know what makes you so sore. You want to try to get rid of all that damaged tissue. So there's just so much that goes into, and in, in today, like we talked f end and end about nutrition. Like now all these fighters and all these people trying to be in shape, you know, not only, uh, you know, with their muscle tone, but also, uh, recovery the recovery and uh you know c conditioning like it makes a huge difference yeah the ice baths and everything and now there's all those massage guns like the tim yeah but i mean cryotherapy cryo like which i hate by the way like i i hated cryotherapy like i did it a couple times of course everyone and their brother called me hey do this and i'm sure the fighters use it a lot but i just didn't like being that cold for you know even though the, the recovery is great I think the ice bath much worse than cryotherapy. Yeah. We did ice baths even in high school football, in 1990, 91, you know. Yeah, that's true. But what did you think about Pilates and yoga? You know, I liked the Pilates. I never got into the yoga, even though I wouldn't be afraid to try it today. Uh, but the Pilates, I had a reformer at home, and I had a Pilates instructor. So, um, And it's actually where we interviewed for the first time you and I like that building <laughs> oh, I remember yeah, yeah. specifically like she was upstairs there and uh you know it really it put me it was so difficult for me in the beginning because you know to have your the body like and work the core especially when I was used to lifting weights and I thought you know oh, I'm buff and I can do all this and you know I felt like kind of weak on that thing but it really, it changes bodies. Like I know women that phenomenal bodies would just on reformers. Yeah, my sister's a Pilates instructor mm -hmm. and she's ripped Very and tone. can like do these different handstands and everything. Because you don't understand when you have to incorporate your core like that, it's so much calorie burning. Yeah. That's why these, these performers you see in Circus Soleil or these shows, 
like you see them in the gym and these bodies i remember seeing all these guys in vegas i'm like man these guys could win bodybuilding contests and this is year round what they look like but that core work that they're doing to do all those that dynamic of what they do is just incredible. And to go full circle, at least he's the starting quarterback for the Bears right now. Andy Dalton, I know he's big in Pilates. His wife, I think, is a Pilates instructor. Big, She's big in Pilates, but I remember seeing a whole special on Andy Dalton doing Pilates. I wish more athletes would talk about like their protocol. It's almost like I, I did a lot of interviews in the books because it didn't exist uh, social back then, But uh, and I like to talk about it because y- – you know, I wasn't afraid of someone going and doing it because it was a lot of work and it took time and it took a lot of financial responsibility. And, you know, I was prepared to spend every dollar that I ever won at the Olympia. I was winning 200 grand back then um, at the Mr. Olympia. And I had spent every dollar. I mean, I spent talk about the food was a hundred and, you know, between tissue work. And I mean, I'd spent 4,000 a month just on massages, you know, so it was just crazy. Like, I, I mean, I was willing to put every dollar back in, in today, you know, at my age, you know, I can, I'm not restrictive of anything that I do. And I, I believe a lot of it is dedicated to the commitment I had in doing all those other extra things other than just pounding weights. For, for what you just said too, about doing your morning walk and the longboard and the meditation, I'm surprised you haven't gotten to yoga. And you talked about stretching because with yoga, it totally checks the boxes of the meditation and the stretching. And definitely the core strength. He too. does it once a, week, once a week, and he's like begging me to do it. So I finally joined a yoga studio. I've only been there once, but it feels nice. Do you do hot yoga or? I've done it all, um, but since this pandemic, it's actually kind of funny. I'd love to get your opinion on this. Uh, I had I've had a phase of trying all different types of exercises. I went and found at the beginning of the pandemic these old P90X DVDs with Tony Horton and stuff. So back in 2004, he did this 90 minute yoga uh, session where, Mm -hmm. you know, he does 50 minutes, first 10 minutes, it's intense. The next 15 minutes, it's all of like, you know, the static poses and long form stretching. So for 90 minutes once a week, I dedicate myself to that. But to, to what you said, I've done the hot yoga um, and man, you are, you're just sliding and slipping everywhere, man. It's just way too Let me ask you this though. So mentally it's great right oh yeah but physically has it taken uh anything away from you like pain or restriction that you've noticed i think it's totally helped with my flexibility and i think it's really helped with like low back support like with what we do all the time we are sitting or standing for long periods of time so if i find myself if i'm not doing yoga once a week my low back is going to tighten up in those situations when we're always on our feet Mm -hmm. or always sitting and editing a piece of content but it's definitely helped me so much i'm so much more uh limber like i i can i can touch my toes and put my whole palms to the floor and that's evolved over time it's definitely made me so much more flexible can i say it's transition to better gains in the gym I, I can't say that no but that's not what i'm doing it for i'm doing it for the meditation and just making my body feeling great yeah you know a lot of reason i started to uh just to point out is the long plane rides i was booked yeah. every weekend so if you asked me on a you know 52 weeks a year uh, i would travel 36 to 40 weekends out of that 52 to do appearances and that would involve planes and you know, sitting down in a seat for it's the worst thing for you. Oh, yeah. So I would get super tight, and that's why I think I needed that. Especially after, say, if I did legs on a Friday and I caught a flight, 
and you're sitting there for six or eight hours sometimes or you go on these overseas flight it was just you know you know if i flew business or whatever it's a little easier but those positions just they lock you down that's what we always talk about just the flights. The flights. It's just, we're going to have to do the cross-country flight, but then we did like four different flights to Abu Dhabi on Flight Island in the past year for to cover the UFC. Mm-hmm. That's 15, 16 hours each way, and that's brutal. That's definitely brutal. Yeah, yeah I was there for the uh, the first Poirier-Khabib uh, fight. I was in the arena. Oh, you went. I went. 242. Two? Yeah, two forty. I was there for the first. They, they had it in a. Te- it was like a. Yeah, tent. they said it was really hot in there. Yeah, it was unbelievable. Like it wow. was crazy, and uh, it, it, we had an appearance around that time. And the royal family actually invited me to the. You know, I ended up in a box and watched the fight, and it was pretty crazy. And uh, you know, that was I, I got to see that for the first time, and that was the only time I ever saw Khabib fight. I didn't go to the, the uh, uh, McGregor fight when he was when it was here. Would you consider Khabib the greatest of all time? I mean, record-wise, yeah. I mean, I'd love to see him come back, though. What about John Jones? Yeah, he's. I think he's legit. I mean, I don't know if he's going to move up to heavyweight. I think he's finding it a little more difficult. He's in the bodybuilding arenas a lot, though, because he was sponsored by one of the companies. And that, So that's the situation. You're the perfect guy to ask this. Maybe this will be one of the final things we ask you, but um, John Jones, you know, he's making this move up the heavyweight, but he's having trouble keeping on the weight, you know? He's naturally... It's all eating, yeah. It's all eating. He's having trouble, but uh, he wants to do it, And but I think from his most recent post, he wants to push back on time. Like, he doesn't want to do it necessarily this summer. He might take up to a year, like... If you're John Jones, like, what would you do to put on to keep on the weight, but good weight, muscular weight, yeah, and to keep his he, speed? He's just got to keep training. Um, he's got to, you know, stick stick with the. I mean, we talk about not burning the calories, so you got to find the happy medium between, uh, you know, combat fighting training versus, you know, like I mentioned, everything ten repetitions and, you know, certain rest periods, and the, the food consumption has to be tremendous when you're trying to put on weight, but. I think it's a smart ploy, actually, because I think he's going to get paid more money if it the longer this thing drags on, and if Francis can retain. Um, I know he's fighting uh, uh, the Derek Derek, Derek uh, Lewis, Lewis. Yeah. yeah, which you know, listen, he's no slouch at all. But if Francis can retain, uh, it, that could be the biggest payday we ever see in uh, UFC history. He's got Richard Schaefer from the boxing world now advising him, but then, but what happens if Francis ends up fighting Derek Lewis and the other side of the coin, Derek Lewis is the heavyweight champion. Do you lose monetary uh, leverage if you're John Jones? Um, I don't think so. I think it's, you know, we talk about the Manny, Manny Floyd thing. You know, it's still, uh, it's still John Jones. Like this, if you asked the all time greats, I mean, listen, I watched Anderson Silver win everything like he was ran that streak i don't know what his streak was but it was at the time i mean i watched george st pierre who was unbelievable and i mean matt sarah beating him was like a fluke in my opinion like of course he came back and won it and then stepped away and he just was all around a great fighter so we can talk about to the end of day it's kind of like talking bodybuilding where i think we can agree that ronnie coleman was like the best physique but they'll talk about other greats too uh I think Jones, like, he just comes, I mean, the whole family's just, they're beasts, right? Um, and I think he's smart to hold out. I don't, I don't know if Dana's going to pay them what they want, but, you know, I don't know what that number is. You just, there's too many, too much social media number 
True. game out there, right? We don't Twitter. Yeah, what what is his real number? Like the guy wants ten million or something. He'll get ten million bucks. It, they're gonna have to do something where not everybody's happy, but everyone tolerates it, and it's definitely gonna. F- break the current mold that the UFC has for their payouts and their pay-per-view structure. I'll, I'll spend the what uh, 60 or 80, or I don't care what it is, I'll spend the $100 yeah, to watch it. Maybe that's what it is. You just may make an extra $20 bump just for this fight. If normally it's, what, yeah. 60, 70, you make it 80, 90, and just give that to John Jones and Francis. Exactly. Listen, I'm a fan of all these guys. I mean, Francis is, I, I wouldn't want to fight Francis, you know, but John... John's a smart guy. I think he can figure it out. The guy I wouldn't want to fight is Shaq. <laughs> yeah. He, I, him next to Francis, you're. He's like, it looks like a little kid. Even though Francis did lift him up, he's not gonna get into the. Yeah, no, no, but okay. he was. Yeah, but he okay. did. Uh, you know. But you know, he plays around and he's police officer talking about the criminal yeah, justice. Yeah. Uh, Shaq. Shaq. There's nothing Shaquille O'Neal can't do. I, agree. I swear to God, I mean, the guy DJs, he's on every commercial there is. Uh, he's funny. Yeah. Yeah. Good broadcaster. Broad brass, good broadcaster. Yeah, yeah. The first time I, I ever blew up and people knew who I was, uh, I interviewed Dana White. And, and right before I interviewed him, because he invited me to the office, it was after I did this viral thing. Um, I asked him, question pre- press conference, this huge guy walks in. It's Shaquille O'Neal. So I met Shaq the first time. Shake his hand. Couldn't even see my hand. His hands were just ginormous. He sits down, watch chi- eating chicken wings, and watches this interview. And I'm like, fuck. This guy is living the life. Shaquille O'Neal. Yeah, I mean, when I, you know, I was a, I was a Celtics fan. So <laughs> when I moved to California in 90, I had to become a Lakers fan because that was like the Kobe Shaq years where they did like the three years or whatever. And uh, everyone would drive around with their Lakers flags out the windows. And uh, I mean, Shaq was just, he was a beast back then. And I had to become a fan of that. And, you know, he is agent actually, um, or whatever his, his, in Vegas, Perry Rogers, you know, and then he had the TV show and like Shaq's done it all, man. He's got his chicken shack here, and actually, he did go back to your Celtics. I know it was at the end of the career. He played there for one year. Yeah. It wasn't meaningful. But I only lived in L.A. for seven years, but I could never be a Lakers fan because I grew up in the 90s, and I had the greatest oh, basketball the Bulls, player. Yeah. yeah, greatest basketball player of all time and Michael Jordan. Not LeBron. I'm just or Larry kidding. Legend. He's up there, but, you know, to me, the GOAT. So yeah, it's, it's funny uh, to talk about Jordan. I remember the first kid that came in with the original Jordans. Nine, it was 85. They launched those shoes, and... I remember the kids paid a hundred dollars for the shoes, and no one's—I mean, you were buying shoes for like fifteen dollars back then. And I'm like, man, this kid must be rich. Like he's wearing these Jordan ones. And today, I have—I have a collection. People follow me for my shoe collection, and Jordan ones are like my my go-to shoe. You know, I used to wear designer shoes everywhere, and now I wear out as like my jeans and my ones. You know, because there's so many variations now. It's crazy. It's it's nuts. You're um, rocking some right now too. No, I'm actually, yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm not uh, my Jordan ones, but no. my Air Maxes. I'm an Air Max fan too. All great things. Um, you know, we really appreciate you hopping on the Schmo Zone. Do you have any final thoughts you want to leave? No, man, I appreciate uh, you guys. I'm following uh, what you do, which is great. I mean, I'm tuning in, and I'm on YouTube every morning. I don't watch television, so I do watch. Uh, YouTube's the new TV. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. And I do a ton of YouTube, uh, you know, content myself because that lets people inside your personal life a little bit. 
Um, but you know, as as you progress and you know, you guys continue, it's uh, it's great to watch. And you know, I would just watch your stuff, you know, a week or whatever ago when Cody uh, did the interview with oh, you and you. before the uh, before the fight. And I, I remember, yeah, I remember you were just starting out when we did our first one, so it's pretty amazing. I, oh my gosh! Thank you again. I I think you covered my f- bodybuilding show here. I, I did. I actually did wanted to bring that up, and I'm glad you did the Jay Cutler Desert Classic. Yes, uh, we're in year. We just did ten. It was, should have been eleven because we canceled in the pandemic yeah. year. So this was our tenth. Congratulations! One. Yeah, we have it at South Point now, and. Uh, I do four now, so I do Virginia, and I do two in Boston, and I do one in Las Vegas. So that's one thing now is, you know, I get to create these platforms for the athletes to compete on the amateur level. We actually have women's pro bikini in our uh, one here in Las Vegas, too. So it's just great to be transplanted in Las Vegas. I really hope you stay. I really hope you like Vegas a lot. I mean, I'm not going anywhere. Yeah, I mean, you've been here. You've been here for a minute. Yeah, born and raised. So... Uh, it's just Vegas is where it's at. I Fastest growing sports city in the world. We're going to have a pro major league baseball when? team here. And MB- well, what I heard is there's right now a rule. My younger brother is a baseball savant. I think I said yeah. this in last week's episode, <laughs> but basically there's a rule where you can't have a major league team within 15 miles of a minor league team. And we have the triple A team yeah. for the, the A's right in here, the aviators. So they just have in to Summerlin or something. Right? They have to move some things around. It's in Summerlin. Exactly. They have to move some things around, but I think the A's would come here. Um. Yeah. No. This this city's booming. The Raiders have changed the whole aura oh of Las Vegas. Hundred yes. percent. You know the Knights also. I mean the Knights have done amazing. Definitely. I lived at you know Mandarin Oriental, which is now Waldorf Astoria, and I remember living there. And the T-Mobile didn't exist, and of course the Raiders Stadium wasn't there. And to imagine now, like we drive. I my office is right near the late Raiders Stadium, so I drive by every day and I watch that thing being constructed, and I'm like as it grew and grew and grew and I'm like I still wake up on a daily basis and say wow I live in Las Vegas I do I pinch myself too because three years ago I didn't know life existed outside of the strip in Las Vegas I didn't know but I went to college in Tucson Arizona Mm -hmm. at the U of A and this feels a lot like Arizona like Henderson feels like Scottsdale um but this is better no state. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to get except, people moving. Yeah, here. I, I was I don't about to say do the that. traffic. I, I it's gotten to, worse. And I can deal with the heat. And I know I, you might be able to agree with me here, but I'd much rather be hot, like a hundred degrees, than sit in fifteen degrees and shovel snow uh, just to, and off my car and scrape the ice to to move my car in the morning. Yeah, I saw more towards the east coast and you know mid. Uh, I think we understand that a little more. Yeah, it's funny because the California people look at Massachusetts and they were like. Oh my God, the four seasons and the snow, and you grew up in the best. And listen, don't get me wrong, I, I would had four seasons and I loved it because I was able to experience a lot. But I, we all have a choice. And in '99, I made that choice and I migrated west, and I'm never going back. So I said the same thing. Uh, yeah, 100%. I might get a little homesick in the fall because you know fall, the football season, the leaves changing and everything like that. But the weather, like. No, this is... And now we have a football team, and, nah. you know, we all have it all. I mean, And plus, when you wake up and the West Coast and the games start at 10 a.m., yeah, yeah. it's, <laughs> it's the best thing ever I discovered in college. You know, it's... Can't, you don't look at football the same. Yeah. For sure. West Coast is the best uh, coast. Yeah, yeah. Well, I appreciate you coming on. We'll have to do it again. But the next time well, we you. do something... Um, 
you know, we'll both interview you, and I want to be the schmo. I think it'll be good. As long as you want to be uh, play your part, of course. Oh, I, yeah. He uh, basically becomes a completely different person. I know. I, I see the. Yeah. I the see the, uh, So isn't this kind of weird, right? Well, I w- didn't know what to expect. I didn't know. I when I ca- I called you the schmo, I was like. Okay, shit. Should I have said that? <laughs> no, I pr- I like that. I like. That. I mean, he called he called you small too, but yeah, that's true. <laughs> Thanks, Travis. Uh, appreciate you very much. We'll do it again sometime soon. Episode sixty-five of the Schmozone Podcast. We are out. Mm-hmm.